Romans chapter 15, and we will read beginning at verse 22. For this reason I have often been hindered from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, And to be helped on my way there by you when I first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for for me that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, we return this morning to this closing section of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And um, as you can tell, this is, has quite a different atmosphere than uh, the portion of Romans that we've been looking at for several years, which is the main body of the letter. And uh, it's very doctrinal. This is more personal, Paul telling about his plans. And it's tempting to think that, you know, we've got to switch gears when we come to this, and it's tempting to think, well, there's not much that we can get out of this. But we need to remember that the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction of right in righteousness. So, um, this is a different sort of instruction than, say, Romans 6, but it is still profitable for us, and there are things that we can glean. Um, we looked last week at verses 20 to 24, where we saw something of Paul's calling to be a trailblazer for the gospel, constantly pressing into unexplored territory and seeing churches raised up in new lands. That doesn't mean that everybody is has the same calling that Paul did. Uh, some people are called to stay back. And uh, it also doesn't mean that Paul, even though he was not wanting to build on another man's foundation, it doesn't mean that he would not do that if the opportunity arose. For example, Romans itself. This uh, church at Rome had not been started by the Apostle Paul. But here he is uh, writing this letter to them, 
building on somebody else's foundation. So he's ready to do that uh, as he's as he has opportunity and as he's able. But his primary calling was to go out into new lands. Um, It does mean that in general, Paul was constantly moving on to new areas. As soon as he saw a church raised up, he would leave those behind to finish the work. And um, we need to realize that uh, if we're not out there on the field breaking into new territory, that we've been left with the task of finishing the work that was begun here. And so we have uh, an obligation and a burden for, um, in our case, America. Um, Not only that, but those who stay behind can and must have a part in the ministry of men like Paul who are going out. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we support them financially, help them on their way financially, and that's verse 24. I hope to see you in passing and be helped on my way there by you, and then also by praying earnestly for them. And we saw that in verse 30. I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So they had the possibility of helping Paul on his way financially and by prayers, and we still have the same thing. And it's something, isn't it? Strive, praying earnestly. Uh, He wasn't just asking for a little token prayer, but real praying for him as he went down to Jerusalem. And we also saw last time, last week uh, from verse 21, that as we proclaim the gospel, we have a promise of success. Men and women will see. It's a promise that the scripture foretold that. God said this is going to result in people seeing and people understanding. Uh, I was reading uh, yesterday about the life of George Grenfell. Uh, We talked a little bit last week about Jim Elliott and uh, how they were martyred, but yet uh, in a short time God had saved people in that very tribe. In fact, the same men that that killed the missionaries. but I was reading yesterday about George Grenfell, who this is not uh, Grenfell in Labrador in that area, but uh, in the Congo. Uh, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, Africa was known as the white man's grave. You go to Africa, you get buried in Africa. And uh, the Congo in particular uh, was known by the missionaries as... Um, the shortcut to heaven. It was a, if you go to go to the Congo, it's the shortcut to heaven. And uh, George Grenfell, uh, between 1883 and 84, a two-year period, seven of Grenfell's co-laborers died. Two years. Now, these are missionaries in one area you know, the Congo. Uh, 1885, the next year, four men in three months. And 1887, two years later, six men in five months. And um, 
basically it, it reminds me, and as I've read some of these accounts of missionaries going into some of these areas, it reminds you of something like D-Day, where you have this massive loss of life. Um, and you just think, what are we doing, you know? And, uh, and they were starting to question there, but Grenfell said, well, you can pull the others back. I'm not going to go back. And he was there for over 20 years and uh, going up and down the Congo in a steamboat that they had carried in by hand and put together. He ended up, his, his mechanic that was going to put it together was one of them. <laughs> he, he died um, before they could ever do anything. So Grenfell put the boat together himself. Uh, out of a thousand pieces, I think it was, or 900 pieces, and uh, that had been carried in, and went up and down the Amazon River for 20 years, and the people who sat in darkness, and it is, I was telling some of the guys yesterday, it was gross darkness, it was some of the worst stuff I've ever read, the people that sat in darkness saw a great light, and uh, God transformed that area of Africa. So we have a promise of success. Uh, Jesus told Peter, follow me and you will catch men. You remember he was catching fish and um, Jesus said, follow me. He didn't say, follow me and you'll strive. You know, I, I like to fish when I catch something. I don't particularly like to fish for days or hours and not catch anything. But he says, follow me, and not that you'll strive without ever any fruit, but he says, follow me and you'll catch men. There's a promise of that. So it's very encouraging to us. All right. Uh, Today we come to verses 25 to 29, where Paul explains why he can't come to Rome quite yet. And the reason is that he has one more thing to accomplish. He has to deliver a money gift to the church in Jerusalem. And today, then, I want us to consider four things. First of all, the gift itself for Jerusalem. And then secondly, Paul's absolute conviction that he was supposed to deliver this gift. Thirdly, his eventual trip to Rome. And fourthly, why Paul thought this gift for Jerusalem was so important. So the gift for Jerusalem itself, we read about this in verses 25 to 28. He says, Now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. So, um, he particularly mentions Macedonia and Achaia, which was that's what we now know as Greece and the area above that. So you had um, the church at Corinth down at the bottom, and then on up higher you had uh, Thessalonica and Philippi and some of those other churches. 
And he doesn't mention here uh, Galatians, but uh, they were involved also in this gift. I think he mentions Macedonia and Achaia because that's where he had just been, uh, concentrating everything. And he mentions their heartfelt desire to give this gift. And we tend to read right over things like that, like this right here. But actually, this particular gift was a big thing to Paul. And it actually comes up a lot in the New Testament. In fact, we have two whole chapters uh, in Second Corinthians devoted to talking about this particular gift. And uh, he mentions it also in 1 Corinthians. So I think what we'll do, just to familiarize ourselves, I don't know how to handle all this. There's a lot of material. And I think the, the way we'll do it is just to turn and read portions of these passages to get a little feel for it. So please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16. <clears throat> and we'll read verses 1 to 4. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it's fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Now, at this stage, he was not clear whether he was going to go. It became very clear, even by the time uh, we read these uh, verses there in Romans 15, uh, he's saying that he's going to go. Then if you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, now the 8 and 9 are two, both, both of these chapters, the whole chapter, uh, relate relates to these gifts or this gift in chapter 8 verses 1 to 4 now brethren we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia that was north of Corinth that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. It's quite an amazing statement. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Now think of the testimony this would be to the Jewish Christians down in Jerusalem. Begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And then down in verse 6, it says, Consequently, we urge Titus, that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. So Paul is uh, asking Titus to get this ready there at Corinth. And you get down to verse uh, 16. He picks this up again. Thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's gone to you of his own accord. And we have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. Not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. 
which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our readiness, taking precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. They're, they're going with more than just one person. Paul, just like uh, you see on Sunday mornings when when uh, uh, the deacons count the money in this room, they have two people in there counting. Why would we'll do that? Well, we know Jim is honest, but you do things like that because you you want to have a testimony to everybody that everything's above board. And that's what Paul was doing here. I mean, you say, well, can't you trust an apostle? Well, yes. But they had more people going along. And he says, uh, taking precaution, verse 20, that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard to what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And so he's uh, going with several others. And uh, down in chapter 9, at the end of the chapter, he says, for the ministry of this, this is verse 12, down to the end of the chapter, verse of chapter 9, for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they, that is, these saints in Jerusalem, will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. And for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So he's talking about the reception that they are going to have once they get to Jerusalem. And he says they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. Okay, so that's the first part, the gift itself for Jerusalem. Secondly, Paul's absolute conviction that he was supposed to deliver this gift. If you turn back to Romans 15, verse 25, he says, I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. So he was planning to go, and he was viewing this as a service or a ministry to the saints there in Jerusalem. And then also in verse 28, Therefore, when I have finished this, he's planning to go, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. So Paul already it was clear here that he was planning to go and concerned about that. <clears throat> but he's also concerned about how he's going to be received and what the outcome is going to be in Jerusalem. And you see that <clears throat> down in verse 30 and 31. I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me 
that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Two things here. He wants his gift to be acceptable to the saints, and he wants to be delivered from the unbelieving Jews. And so he's saying, strive together with me. Earnestly, I need, I need serious prayer for this. So he's concerned already about how this is going to be received. But it doesn't make him question whether or not he's supposed to go. He's confident that he's supposed to go. And we're going to see this right along as we go through the book of Acts. We'll just read some verses in Acts. As I said, I don't know how to get this material out to you without having you actually turn there and read these. Acts 19. Acts 19 and verse 21. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, and I think it should be a capital S here. You have that in the margin. Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Does it sound familiar? Going to Jerusalem, then going to Rome. And then in Acts 20, he starts heading toward Jerusalem. And you remember, he stops at Miletus and sends for the elders of the church of Ephesus because he doesn't want to take too much time in Ephesus. And they come down. And in Acts 20, verse 16, after he's called for these elders, He says in verse 18, When they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. I may have to have somebody else read this. Jim, you want to read it? Read, uh, Read down to verse 25. And then verse 25, he says, Now behold, I know that you all among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. So he says that he's bound by the Holy Spirit in verse 22. He knows that he's supposed to do this. He's convinced. And yet, all along the way, now when he wrote Romans, he was concerned, but as he starts to go back down to Jerusalem, along the way in the ports, and it doesn't tell us about this as far as prior to this, but already, he says, the Holy Spirit was testifying to him in every city, saying that bonds and affliction await him. So you have the two things again. He's, God's telling him, and he is He's convinced, he knows, he's bound by the Holy Spirit to go on. So he's totally convinced in what he's doing. You go down to verse 36 to 38. I think I'll have my reader read those again. 36 to 38. Okay, so they depart from there, and uh, they sail on then. Uh, over to Tyre, which was on the eastern end of the Mediterranean, moving towards Jerusalem and getting a lot closer now. Uh, Verse 3 of 21, they landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. 
And after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And so they go on. It came about when our days there were ended, we departed, started on our journey, and they all with wives and children escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. And they go on from Tyre to Ptolemais, which was just down the coast a little bit there. And they stayed with them for a day, and then they go on down and come to Caesarea, verse 8, and stay with Philip the Evangelist. <clears throat> and then, Jim, if you would again read from verse 10 to verse 14. And here we are again, the will of the Lord be done. And so, everywhere along the way, the Holy Spirit is giving these prophecies that are, that are telling Him what's awaiting Him, and at the same time, His conviction is certain in the Holy Spirit that He's supposed to go. It's an amazing thing. We talked last week about how some men uh, presented that Paul sinned in this. He missed God, that God was trying to tell him don't go. Well, I don't believe that at all. And we see that totally clearly. Once he was... Uh, taken prisoner, taken captive. In um, over, over in verse, over in chapter twenty-three and verse eleven, this is when the commander, the Roman commander, was afraid Paul was going to be torn in pieces by the mob, and he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force. Verse ten, bring him into the barracks. On the night immediately following, verse eleven, twenty-three, eleven. On the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So, to me, there's no question at all that he was in the Lord's will. He was perfectly in God's will, and yet, just think of this, Jesus sends them to go to the other side of the lake, and they encounter a fierce storm all night. Well, I must have missed the Lord. No, he directed them to go right into that storm. And here it is. It's as if he's saying, go out onto the, the, onto the lake, and you're going to encounter a storm. Both things were being said to him. And he was perfectly in the Lord's will, and this was going to be the way that he made it to Rome. I just want to say one more thing here. He was going to get to witness in Rome after all. And in 2417, and those of you that have read the book of Acts, you know how all the things that he went through, getting finally getting to Rome. But he has to stand before Felix. And in chapter 24, in verse 17, he's explaining to Felix, I got to where he was, and he says, After several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Now, that's the only mention in Acts about this contribution, but there it is. He was bringing that contribution to Jerusalem. Okay, so all we're doing is getting a feel for this, getting the background. But that is uh, Paul's absolute conviction that he was supposed to deliver this gift. So then, thirdly, 
Paul's eventual arrival at Rome. And for that, we go over to chapter 28. Chapter 28, of course, again, you remember he's a prisoner. He has to appear before numerous kings and give his testimony. He suffers many things. In Acts 28, and they have a shipwreck. I mean, a lot of things took place. Acts 28 and verse 14. There we found some brethren. This is at Puteoli. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, <clears throat> came from there as far as the market of Appius, Appi Forum, and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, here's the thing. They they heard about Paul coming. He he was walking up the Appian Way, which was a big. It was a great Roman road, and incidentally, you can still walk on it if you go over there. Uh, it's lasted a long time, and that road that that those Christians were walking up towards Rome, they come to Appi Forum, and um, Christians had heard that Paul was coming. The, these very people now that we're, we've been reading Romans all this time, these Roman Christians heard that he was coming and they headed out to meet him. And they walked 43 miles to meet him. Didn't just drive down there, they walked down 43 miles. So Paul, by the time he gets to Appy Forum, the Christians start arriving from Rome. And you can imagine what a joyful thing that was. And then finally, <clears throat> he gets to the three inns or the three taverns, which was another stopping point there on the Appian Way. And um, there was another group of Christians. They had walked 33 miles to get to it. And uh, the word that is used here, now we're told by Bible historians that the word that's used for meeting him uh, is almost a technical term, I just quoted here, almost a technical term for the w official welcome of a visiting dignitary by a deputation which went out from the city to greet him and escort him for the last part of his journey. So <clears throat> here's the triumphal entry of Paul into Rome in chains. Isn't this something? Christianity, the exact opposite of the world. The greatest honor that he could have is he's coming there in chains and he's being greeted by this delegation that comes out from the city to escort him in. It's a wonderful thing. You remember Paul had said, now just to get the time frame, it had been about three years since Romans was written. So we're reading these things at the end of Romans. And at the beginning of Romans, they had read that about three years earlier. And what he had said was this. He said, God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you. I have had for many years a longing to come to you. 
So, he's praying for them. He's longing for them. He's writing this letter to them. And three years later, here he comes. And they're all going out, walking 30, 40 miles to bring him into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry. And actually, the same word is used about the Lord's entry, and it was the same kind of thing. He's going riding a donkey, humble, coming into Jerusalem in a triumphal entry. Well, um, Paul makes it to Rome. And in um, chapter 28 of Acts, uh, well, first of all, verse 16, when we entered Rome... Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. And it happened that after three days, now he's only been there three days, he called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they had come together, he began saying to them, the whole rest of the chapter is taken up with his witness to the leading Jews in Rome. So he's preaching the gospel at Rome. And then finally in 30 and 31, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Well, this is where the book of Acts ends. And so what we're reading here at the end of Romans about him going down to Jerusalem with this gift and then hoping to get to Rome. That's that's all we've got, except for some things that were written afterwards. But he comes, he makes it into Rome. He's preaching unhindered, and Luke closes his account. <clears throat> now, what about this prayer that Paul had asked the Romans to pray for him that we read today in Romans 15? Let me Let me read it to you again. Was it answered or not? He says, I urge you, brethren, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Two things, that I might be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, that's the unbelieving Jews, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Now, was that prayer answered? And I'd say, yes, it was. First of all, Paul was delivered from the unbelieving Jews. Think of this. Suppose you had over 40 guys who swore that they would neither eat. They took an oath that they would neither eat or drink. These are Jews now taking a vow. Suppose you had 40, more than 40, rabid Jews determined that they're, and taking a vow that they won't eat or drink until they've killed you. After a couple of days, they start getting aggressive. <laughs> I mean, this is serious. He was in a serious situation. They hated him intensely. Now, here he is, two years later, three years later, openly preaching the gospel in in Rome. And he's in Rome. He said, I want to go to Jerusalem, then I want to go to Rome. God said, well, I, I want you to, too. Jesus said, You have borne witness to me here in Jerusalem. You will there in Rome. But it wasn't the way that Paul envisioned. But here he is, three years later, he's been delivered from those Jews down there. He has done exactly the will of God. 
He, the Lord wanted him to bear that testimony there. And now he's been delivered from them and he's in Rome and he's freely preaching the gospel. Well, what about the second part of the prayer? <clears throat> His service for Jerusalem did prove acceptable to the saints. And if you go to Acts 21, we'll read that, beginning at verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. It's part of the reason that he needed to be up there to tell firsthand what had happened. They began glorifying God. And they said to him, you, <clears throat> you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they're all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Now, let me ask you a question. Was he doing that? Was he telling the Jews, don't circumcise your children, don't walk according to the customs? He wasn't doing that. That's Romans 14. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own heart if you feel like you ought to do that. Now, here's the thing. He was saying that circumcision is nothing, one way or the other. But he wasn't teaching the Jews that they had to stop doing this. And so there was an element of truth in it, but it wasn't totally right. And um, Paul apparently felt like he would become all things to all men in this situation, whether it was uh, the wisest course of action, I don't know. But anyway, it ended up that uh, he was seen by some Jews in the temple and taken into custody by the Romans and uh, everything else that followed. So the question comes up, why was this gift so important to Paul? And why didn't he just let somebody else deliver it? And this is the last point, and this we're finally getting past the history to the application. I think there are four reasons, very briefly. Paul did, first of all, Paul did have a real concern for the poor in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul and Barnabas had already made a trip years earlier to Jerusalem where, when there was a famine in the land. And it says in Acts 11, in, <clears throat> quote, in the proportion that any of the disciples, this was at Antioch, in proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. And so that was years earlier, and apparently this is what Paul refers to in Galatians 2. He says he went up because of a revelation. You remember Agabus had a revelation there was going to be a famine, and they went up there for that purpose because of a revelation. He went up to Jerusalem with this gift, 
And uh, the other apostles recognized him as an apostle to the Gentiles. And he says, they only ask us, this is Galatians 2.10, they only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So the first uh, application out of all this is that even an apostle can can think that it's important to help out Christians that don't... I mean, it may not seem very spiritual, but it's very spiritual. And he was concerned for particularly these these saints that were in poverty. And so we have an application there, and that's the, <clears throat> the least application maybe, but it's a real one. And it was a very big burden on his heart to help them out. But secondly, <clears throat> Paul viewed this as an opportunity to bring home to the Gentile Christians their indebtedness to Jerusalem. Uh, he says this in Romans fifteen twenty seven. He says, yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. <clears throat> and you remember back in chapter 11, he warns the Gentiles about having a high-handed attitude toward the Jews. He says, <clears throat> do not be arrogant toward the branches, that is the natural branches, the Jews. But if you are arrogant, remember that, you, that, it, that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. <clears throat> you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So this was a, a danger for the Gentile Christians to start, sort of start thinking. that Somehow they're out here on their own. And they look back at those Jews, you know, those, you know, look at them, you know, they have all these scruples and they're still doing this and that that we know doesn't matter. And that's what he dealt with a lot in chapter 14 and he dealt with it in chapter 11. And this was a big thing to him. He wanted them to realize that they owed everything under God to Jerusalem. And we've got to have this thing. We need to realize that we're not how, why are we even here? We're here because of what God did back there. And this was what he was getting through to them. So he viewed this as an opportunity to bring home to the Gentile Christians their indebtedness to Jerusalem. But thirdly, <clears throat> he wanted this gift to be a means of cementing the fellowship that ought to be maintained between Jerusalem and the Gentile churches. Here they are back here. He is here there there he is way out there. There are all those churches scattered around. And this was a this was a way that their unity could be cemented together. Why do you think God allowed the the saints of Jerusalem to be poor? So that the churches of the Gentiles could give them this gift. So that they could be bonded together. And it is amazing, isn't it, how much I mean and it wasn't easy for some of them. We read that. Some of them were very poor, and they graciously, generously gave this gift to Jerusalem 
And Paul says many thanksgivings are going to arise because of this. There's going to be all kinds of prayer go up and prayer for you. It was a cementing of this bond with the Gentile churches in Jerusalem by a very gracious um, gift of love. But it was more than all that. Why was Paul so concerned to go up there? It was not only helping the poor in Jerusalem. It was not only reminding the Gentiles of their indebtedness to the Jews. It was not only uh, a bonding of unity by an act of love, but it was also, and I want to quote F.F. Bruce in this, he says, it was the climax of Paul's Aegean ministry and an act of worship and dedication to God before he set out for the West. Indeed, it was the outward and visible sign that offering up of the Gentiles which crowned his priestly service as apostle of Jesus Christ. That's why he had come to attach so much importance to his personally accompanying the Gentile delegates to Jerusalem, there to present this offering to God. Now, you remember we talked about this in the earlier verses. Paul viewed, he said, my, he said, I'm ministering as a priest the gospel of God that my offering of, up of the Gentiles might become acceptable. So when you look back in the Old Testament, <clears throat> you've got this sacrificial system. You've got priests offering up sacrifices. And we know that was a picture of the Lord offering up himself as a sacrifice. But it's also a picture of Christians offering up spiritual sacrifices. And it's also a picture of Paul the Apostle. He says, that's a picture of me offering up the Gentile. And anybody that sees, any time we see anybody converted, you come back to God and offer them up as an offering to God. And it's, what a privilege. And so Paul, look, well, let me just read one more sentence. He says, there to present this offering to God, perhaps by an act of worship at that very place in the temple where once Christ had appeared to him and sent him far away to the Gentiles. <clears throat> well, let me, let me read that account. You may not remember it. But after he had been converted, he was at Damascus for three years. He, he had come back to Jerusalem and he was speaking out boldly for the Lord. And it says in Acts 22, the Lord appeared to him in a vision, and it came about when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in thee. And when the blood of thy witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. So Paul thought, look, you know, the, the fact that I was such a persecutor, the Jews ought to really listen to me. Well, it was the opposite. They hated him even more because he had betrayed the cause. And he said to me, go. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. We looked at that picture. I mean, he goes up all the way up through all that area, far away to the Gentiles. 
And what's he saying here at the end of Romans? He's saying, <clears throat> he's saying, now there's no further place for me in this part. So he completed his ministry. And what's he going to do now? Before he goes out even further west to Spain, he wants to go back. You know, the Lord sent him out to the Gentiles. He wants to go back with a group of Gentiles from these churches and a gift from the Gentiles to the Jews and worship the Lord and offer them as an offering to God. I think that's why it was so important to him. I think it's right on. That's why this meant so much to him. He's going back to the starting point. And you remember earlier he says that from Jerusalem roundabout to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel. What do you mean from Jerusalem? Most of it started at Antioch. But in his mind it started back there at Jerusalem when the Lord said to him, I'm getting you out of here and I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. So now he's going back. As he says here, the climax of Paul's Aegean ministry and an act of worship and dedication to God before he set out for the West. I think it had great symbolical, or however you want to say it, significance in his mind. He's going back to make this offering. And the Lord wanted him to do it, that final witness. As far as we know, that was the last word that he ever had there uh, where he testified uh, to the Jews. They were ready to tear him apart. The Roman commander steps in, spares his life. So... um, when we're reading, back to, back to Romans 15, just in closing here. When we're reading Romans, it's good to remember, isn't it, that uh, this has a setting in history. This was a real person writing real people. And... Uh, it was just a few months after this, these words were written about longing to see them that he was on his way down to Jerusalem. And, they were, and everybody was testifying, you're going you're gonna to have affliction when you get down there. It was three years before he made it to Rome. And he received quite a welcome when he got there. 